Welcome to Econ Roots, your podcast on the roots of economic thought. I'm Stefan. And I'm Otto. Let's get on with today's conversation. Welcome, dear listeners, to this installment of Econ Roots, an episode uh, both me, Stefan, and you, Otto, uh, have been looking forward to, I think, because we have to talk about growth now, and that is so important. But before we get to that, Otto, I, I do have a bit of podcasting news, which... Uh, might be news to you, I don't know, but um, it will probably be news to our non-Danish listeners because um, it turns out that the best thing you can be in this world, apparently, is some of the highest things you can strive to is be a podcast host. Did you know that? Uh, sure, sure. Yes, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody knows. The, the reason why I'm saying it is, of course, based on data, and that's because our prime minister has started a podcast. Did you know that? Yes. Yes. Have you heard it? No. No, me neither, to be honest. But uh, I just think it's so cool that the highest thing C can be is basically us. <laughs> But you know what? The first thing I would do if I were prime minister of Denmark was also... You would resign? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah. No, no. but I would, <laughs> I would definitely not have a podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I take out of the way. We are happy that you are listening into the, to today's conversation, which is about growth, an important uh, topic, maybe the most important topic uh, in economics. Um, and um, just to get us off before we take the three stars of today, uh, which is uh, solo of uh, Northhausen Römer. Um, I like to talk a little bit about with Otto uh, why growth is important. Uh, we were lucky to have economist Tyler Cohen visit us for a while back, and he calls uh, growth a stop and attachment of economics, something that we have to uh, always remember to prioritize. Why do you think he does that, Otto? But because it is uh, one of the most important uh, phenomena mm -hmm. in, in, in the modern world. Uh, and, and we should stress in the modern world because growth is something new, and, and maybe we shouldn't take it for for, for as much as granted as, as we do. I think that there's a couple of good points in that. Uh, DJ Maklowski calls it the, the great enrichment comes from growth, right? Uh, which is a relatively modern phenomenon. And taking it for granted is also important not to do. Uh, I give many high school talks and these students, uh, bless them, uh, tend to take uh, take growth for granted. Um, I think sometimes it's because uh, it's, a, it's like an um, exponential function. So, you know, it happens a little over the time and that's hard for our brains to really comprehend. But when you look through the century, it's just insane what we have seen, right? Like if we go back to the turn, uh, to the beginning of the 20th century, most families spend around 70% of their household income on food. And now we're less than 10%. And uh, if you have to spend that much on food, like over around 70%, there's there's no foreign travel, there's no holidays, there's there's no fashion clothes, there's none of this stuff, right? You have to work all the time. And, and one of the things that I tell these students that surprises them is that even the fact that they can go to school is because of growth, right? Because school in both Latin and Greek actually means leisure time, right? And you don't have leisure time if you have to spend that much time on food, right? And and, and thanks to growth, that's not the case, right? Growth really is the is, uh, extremely important modern phenomenon. Um, if we if we go back in time um, from from the uh, birth of Christ <laughs> on, on, until the, the Industrial Revolution uh, 200 years ago. Um, the, the most optimistic estimates uh, say that the, the, 
living standards, GDP per capita, which is what we usually talk about when we're talking about growth, uh, was uh, was about a doubling. So our ancestors at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution were perhaps uh, twice, they had twice the, uh, the living standard uh, that they had the 2,000 years mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we look at our living standards today compared to what uh, they had at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, uh, if you look at the figures for Denmark, it's uh, 24 times, 24 times, and you should, and you should, then that you should count that uh, not only is the the uh, GDP per capita per year higher. Uh, the, the, 24 times uh, we live twice as long so so if if you look at it your living standard over your whole lifespan is 50 times that of your ancestors uh, it's an incredible number incredible it's a- number and even Denmark has had a, 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 an impressive growth rate uh, but even if you look at the world it's uh, it's a multiple of 14 times and all over the world, uh, our our life expectancy has, has been growing as, as well. So we are enormously much richer. And one of our laureates today, uh, Bill Nordhaus, has even claimed that our uh, usual way of measuring GDP uh, uh, is insufficient. Um, and he has looked at th- th- something interesting. Uh, he, he has looked at the price of light, <laughs> artificial light, <laughs> yeah. uh, going back in time. And uh, when he he, he looked at the price of light going back 200 years, it's it's not a, a multiple of 14 or 24 times. It's a multiple of 900 times, <laughs> 900 times. And if you look at what you can buy for uh, how, how much you can buy uh, f- uh, with your time. Um, when you look at the, the wages you earn, it's much, much more. Uh, and so uh, that that's, is an illustration of, of, of what how important growth is. And if and if, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and meet your your ancestors 200 years ago and and they were to to ask you what the most important thing we can do for you, <laughs> uh, you you would probably answer: make sure that the that 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 we have economic growth, yeah. uh, because that's that's the reason why you have this incredible living standard com- compared to them, and and the same is uh, probably true for our ancestors. If we go forward. We have uh, growth going forward. They will look back at our living standards and they will pity us. <laughs> say, How could they ever <laughs> so poor? <laughs> How could they live like that? Exactly. Yeah. Um, they, they even they knew pain uh, yeah. once in a while, and um, so um, 
I, I, I agree. It's uh, growth is really important. Yeah, it's, Tyler gave me this example when he was here, Tyler Cohen, which I really liked. He said that every year around eight million people dies from air pollution. And when you mention this fact to people, they think it's about global warming and so on. It's not. Six million of those or so is because they are still using fire and coal indoors to heat their houses and cook their food and so on, which give you pollutants, which you die from, right? And that's because they're poor, right? But if we have growth, they will not be poor forever, right? They're they're generally because we used to do that. That as well, and then not that many generations ago, we would fire with uh, with burning wood and fossils and so on inside. We don't do that anymore. Um, so it is actually one thing about growth, which many people don't understand. It's not about making the rich richer. It's actually also about generally lowering, uh, generally uh, uh, increasing, sorry, not lowering, increasing living standards, especially for the low lowest uh, levels of society and, and the world, um, which makes it a really worthy cause, I think, to, to focus on growth. Uh, but something that many people misunderstand. Another thing we'll talk about today and we'll need to get going on the on on the on the start of the show but is that uh, many people tend to think that growth is about spending more resources when in fact it's not but we'll get to that we'll get to that um Cool. So those are some good uh, observations as to why uh, growth is so important. So I think we should just get on with it. Should we Otto? Yeah. Sure. Lovely. So we'll start with the uh, with uh, Solov, and I'll just give his bio, and then we'll talk about what his contribution was and have a little discussion about that. So uh, his full name is Robert Merton Solo. He's actually an order of Prince Henry. I did not know that, but he was. Uh, he was born August uh, um, 20, 23rd, uh, 1924. So he's almost 100 years old, yes. which uh, begs the question, is he the oldest living economist in the world? Which is a good question. I don't know. I haven't researched it, but it's it's interesting. I don't uh, know. <laughs> I, I don't know either. Um, he's um, he's American. He was born in Brooklyn, New York, into a Jewish family. He regarded his uh, parents as being very intelligent, but they did not have the chance to go to college. Uh, however, he did. He actually excelled really early. He went to uh, Howard College on a scholarship at the age of 16, which is pretty impressive, I must say. Uh, besides economics, he uh, have also studied a bit of anthropology and sociology. Um, however, he um, he got to meet Vasily Leontief pretty early, and uh, from him he got an early interest in modeling, basically, which would be very important for his career. And in fact, he calls himself in his uh, noble lecture, he calls himself a natural-born macroeconomist, which is, I think is an interesting term. Um, however, before he started his academic career, his fluency in German made him a very valued inception officer in the U.S. Army during World War II, where he was stationed abroad. Uh, and when he returned home, he married his uh, his wife, uh, Barbara, uh, which he's only been dating for six months. So that was, you know, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Seal the deal. <laughs> and, and he seems to be a very loyal person because he spent his entire career at MIT since 1949. They still married? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, uh, I think so. Four of his PhD students, uh, George Agalov, Joseph Stiglitz, Peter Diamond, and William Nordhaus, who we'll get to later today, actually got the Nobel Prize. Um, and he got it in uh, in uh, 87. And um, he got it for his contribution to the theory of economic growth. He's also a uh, John Bates Clark Medal recipient in 61 and a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient in 2014. Um, uh, and I have a couple of points here. Well, well, we can get to that. Yeah, I'm, yeah. let's take this now. So one of the things he was involved in was the, uh, before we get to why he got the prize, was, uh, was the Cambridge Capital controversy. Um, 
which is still, I guess, unsettled, right? It's like some people say it's settled, some people were not. It was a battle between the growth boys of MIT, right, him and Samuelson, and uh, the post Keynesians at, at Cambridge uh, about basically um, uh, how much you could aggregate and still. Um, uh, in the measure of capital. Exactly, in the measure of capital. And he, he comments on it in his. Um, um, in his uh, in his Nobel speech, which I'll just give a couple of um, uh, lines here, he says, "If I may revert to a methodological propaganda again, I would I like that term methodological propaganda. <laughs> I would like to remind my colleagues and the readers that every piece of empirical economics rests on a substructure of background assumptions that are probably not quite true. For instance, these total factor productivity calculations require not only that market prices can serve as a rough and ready approximation of marginal products." But that aggregation does not hopelessly distort these relationships. Under those circumstances, robustness should be the supreme economic, uh, econometric virtue, and overinterpretation is the endemic econometric vice. That's a good thing to keep in mind, I think, for most people. So, uh, background made a lot of contribution. So, why why did he deserve to get the prize? Well, he, he gave us the basic framework, the basic model uh, we use when we when we think about uh, economic growth and the economic process over time. Um, that's uh, Solos' uh, model. He, he wrote a very famous article in uh, 1956 called The Contribution to Economic Growth. And he put forward a, the, the model that we are sort of basic model we are we are still using today and that basic model can always also be used uh, to uh, to account for economic growth mm -hmm. it's important that we, we know where which are the sources to to economic growth uh, if, if we look at it over time so that 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 was uh, that is important if, if we look at basically what his 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 theory is about is <laughs> We should probably mention, by the way, that uh, Trevor Swan came up with something similar at the same time and so yes. on. So sometimes we sort of share the credit with him, but let's move on. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah, and then you can go just back a side to back. others like uh, Ramsey or yeah. did, uh, had similar ideas in, in the in the 1920s yeah. already. So, so, And Adam Smith as well also was focused yes. on growth and so on. So we go further back, but whatever, just, just but, a side uh, line. But... Uh, Salo's uh, article proved very, very uh, influential, yeah. uh, and 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 his way of doing it, his way of thinking, was very clear. So I, I think it was very well deserved that he got the Nobel Prize, uh, and and we see him as as as, as one of the founders in, of our theory. Um, basically, what he's looking at is looking at the economic process as uh, a process where you have some inputs <laughs> you can almost look at the economy as like kind of machine <laughs> <laughs> so you put uh, input into the machine and you uh, get some output and um, that output can be used for uh, either you can consume it or you can use it as new input uh, so that's basically the, the way it, it goes and he has the two, basically, uh, two two kinds of input into to the machine. Um, you have 
labor and you have capital. Mm -hmm. And what you can produce with a machine is, especially in, in this version, is more capital. So, um, so, so uh, over time, you, you you get growth because you get more capital. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, what's uh, an important aspect of, of his modeling is that capital and labor, they are at the same time, they are substitutes. Um, so I can produce the same with less labor if I have more capital mm -hmm. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But they are also uh, complements mm -hmm. in the sense that if you if you um, add uh, one uh, one factor, you would need uh, to, to, for instance, if you doubled the the, the amount of of capital, you would have to double the amount of labor to get the double uh, <laughs> amount of, 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 of production. So, but, and, and that has, these uh, assumptions has an, some important uh, uh, implications in this model. So, um, over time, what happens? You could, will, will this go on forever? Not in his model. No. Because, um, you, you can in, increase capital by saving, uh, but some of the savings have uh, to uh, compensate for the fact that the that the the, the cap previous capital is depreciating. Mm -hmm. So if your capital stock becomes large enough, all your savings will have to go to compensate for mm -hmm. uh, for, for depreciation. So your net uh, savings will eventually reach zero yeah and when they reach zero in the uh, in the solo model uh, growth will will stop yeah. and uh, at, 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 at some 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 level and that will happen in in, in all economies but uh, how fast you get there depends on the level of saving yeah. in, in in the model and then of course uh, um, he has the third element called the uh, the solo residual, yep. and so if if I can produce more by adding more labor or adding more capital, but uh, you can also get more uh, from the same amount from one year to the next year. So uh, if productivity grows up. Yeah, uh, the, or the total factor productivity. It's uh, modeled usually. It's it's termed like the it's a capital A. <laughs> that's a solo residual, and so that's basically what's unexplained in the model. And interestingly, um, when Solo used the model to produce an account, uh, pr produce growth accounting. Uh, to account for mm -hmm. how how, uh, how had had the growth in the beginning was in the U.S. Uh, how, uh, what uh, what were the the most important factors? Uh, it turned out to be the solo residual. Oh, so 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 basically the the model told told him that there is something else going on. going on which uh, we have to, to to be aware of and that might lead us to 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 some of our other uh, uh, 
stars, superstars today, today because yeah. they have they have been dealing with with that question. Oh yeah, I uh, I, I leave the uh, the listeners hanging for just a moment because I, I know where you're going with this. Um, um, so, but before we leave solo, I think there's a couple of things to just uh, pick up on as well in, in what you said. So, um, I think his point, right, what, what he wanted to do, at least he says so in, in his lecture, is uh, that growth theory was invented to provide a systematic way to talk about and to compare equilibrium path for the economy, right? So, I think that's an important contribution as well that we get a language for comparing the trajectory of society exactly. right uh, and i know people don't like to judge and all that stuff nowadays but there is i mean there is good policy and there's bad policy and and this is a, a way to actually have a, a a discussion around that that's not based on on opinions but actually based on on data and facts uh, so so i think that's a really important thing however it also leads uh, to a a bit of a um, often misunderstanding Uh, about the nature of economic science uh, is that uh, the models numbers should be 100% trusted and so, and so on, right? And he very deliberately said that you do not have to believe the accuracy of these numbers, right? The message they can print is pretty clear anyway, right? That's the point, right? So economic science is an exact science because there's exact relationship between these things, but it's not like we can say if we do this, the economy will grow by this decimal, right? So, so uh, and, and that for lay people can be sort of hard to yeah. grasp at yes. times, I think, right? And also for politicians and so on. Um, I think this is the one one more implication of the theory that we should mention yep. uh, before going forward, and that is the answer to a, to a to an interesting question: Can you have too much growth? Oh yeah, interesting. And uh, actually, uh, you can. Yeah, of course. If if you look at you, you could uh, in theory you could spend all the output. As uh, savings, yeah. In theory, it would not be not consume any. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and then the 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 the, the economy would grow yeah. grow much more, yeah. uh, much faster. Um, but over time, <laughs> you would spend all your resources on capital. In the end, you would end up in the extreme case business, <laughs> yeah. where you save everything and. Invested in, in new capital, you will end up with zero, <laughs> which is of course the, the the point of the whole point uh, of 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 economic activity is in the end to have consumptions. Yeah. So there is an optimal uh, growth path in 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 the solar model, and that was I think was uh, important to to realize at the time because at the time uh, when Uh, you were talking about development economics. Mm -hmm. There was an idea that it, you should just have as much capital accumulation as possible, uh, and that really, in in some cases, led to 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 over investing. Oh yeah. Um, for instance, in the Soviet Union, they wanted to 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 reach the level of of the West, and they 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 starved their their. Uh, <laughs> The, the citizenry uh, in order to accumulate capital yeah. and uh, well they they failed for a lot of reasons but one of the reasons uh, were that they were over investing and they were not having and en not enough and basically they they lost uh, out because they they didn't have enough 
the productivity growth yeah. in, in the yeah. solo residual. Exactly, which is also why solo nowadays is also often used when we talk about S-curve developments, for instance, and, and in terms of this, that there is, you know, you, you start, you have a big return to your uh, to in this, uh, initially invested capital, then it sort of flattens out. And then if you want it to start happening again, which is what we'll get to Roma in a little while, we have been seeing you for a while now, then you need something new to happen. Um, so just uh, to round it off and then we'll move on, it's that uh, because going back to something else you said, we cannot take growth for granted. Just like we can have too much growth, we can definitely have too little growth. Exactly. And we've been blessed with in our lifetime to generally only have positive growth. We have had the years where it's gone uh, gone negative, but over the time it's 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 positive. Uh, but it doesn't need to be like that. Just if you look at the history of Britain, for instance, they've had periods with insane negative growth. Uh, my favorite examples is just like when the Roman Empire left. I mean, you had these people running around basically looking at 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 very advanced capital goods that they have no idea how to produce or consume, right? Like central heating, uh, uh, houses that went over two floors and so on. Like for several centuries, you had people running around looking at how the world used to be better, right? There were literally like capital goods lying around they, exactly. couldn't, they couldn't reproduce or use, right? So I think that's just an, as a wonderful historical example of that, right? Uh, yeah, and, and, and one thing I, I really didn't realize until I, 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 I read about it um, uh, was that we take it f so much for granted yeah. that every generation uh, uh, standard of living is better than the previous. Uh, take, it's, see it almost as law of nature. It's not. It's not. It's not uh, for, for. It's a policy choice. If you go back, yes, and if you go back uh, when when you didn't have systematic growth, mm. uh, it was perfectly normal that uh, you would be worse off than your par parents. Yeah. And actually, if you add to that, that uh, uh, it was you, the, the, the usual case was that the, 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 the rich part of the population had much, much more children than the, the, than the, the, poor. the poor ones. Yeah. So actually, it, it, the standard was that you were, you were poorer than your, your parents, uh, yeah. not, not richer. Yeah, that, exactly. That's been the case for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, so it's only after the Industrial Revolution uh, that it has become a law of nature, oh, yeah. so to speak, that, that every generation is better off than, than the previous. This is such an interesting topic that, uh, we, that could be spent a lot more time on. Also, like, you know, when we think back to previous uh, episodes about rational expectations and so on, like growth is, you know, you expect it now, right? But it might not be a rational thing to expect. But we, we, we need to move <laughs> on as well. But it's such an interesting topic. We might need to do a couple of econ talks on that at one point with some uh, some, some guests. Um, so the next star of the show, which adds something really important to the growth uh, equation, so to speak, in more ways than one, is uh, Paul Michael Romer, born November 6th, uh, 1955, American uh, uh, economist and policy entrepreneur. He's a university professor at New York University. Um, his prize motivation and got the prize uh, with Nordhaus, which is the last star of the show, is uh, he got the prize in 2018 and he got it for integrating technological innovation in the long run macroeconomic analysis. And there you have it, listeners. That is that is the solo residual technology. But we'll get to that in a moment. Let's just finish up with Roma's bio before. Uh, he comes from a political family. 
uh, sort of like uh, a centrist political family. Uh, his um, uh, he was born. To, uh, his da- f- dad was uh, Roy Romer, who was a Colorado governor actually, uh, and Beatrice B. Miller. Uh, he's four. He has four brothers and sisters, and one of his brothers, Chris Romer, is actually a former Colorado state senator. So it's a pretty engaged, politically engaged family. We can assume he graduated uh, Phillips Exeter Academy in 1973, and he earned a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics and a PhD in Economics in 1983, both from University of Chicago, um, and he done graduate studies at MIT, um, and he's also uh, briefly been at Queen's University in uh, Kingston, Canada. Uh, he, Besides his academic career, he's been a chief economist at the World Bank, uh, and um, he is uh, uh, he also been at the University of Chicago, University of California, Berkeley, Stanford University Graduate School of Business, and University of Rochester. He, besides the research he's done academically, he's been in the Natural Bureau of Economic Research, Stanford Center for International Development, Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, the Hoover Institution, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the Center for Global Development. And he has been named in 1997, uh, so it's a while ago, but still one of the 70, uh, 25 most influential people by Time Magazine. Mm. Very, very impressive resume here. Yes. Um, and the last thing we need to uh, to also well two more things before we get to the theory. Um, he is actually an entrepreneur. He founded a company uh, called uh, Applia, um, which uh, allowed students to submit uh, uh, problem sets, college students. And it was actually purchased in two thousand seven by Centrage Learning. So he's 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 done an exit. You know what all those business school students want to do. And one last fun thing in his bio before we get to a theory is that he was actually married on the day he got the prize. Did you know that? No, no, no. Yes, he actually married on the day he got the prize to his uh, wife, uh, Caroline Bieber, who's a very extended French literature professor uh, at Bernard College. He was actually a Pulitzer Prize finalist at one point. And uh, because he is so accomplished, people people sometimes have apparently asked her if she would have married him if he hadn't gotten the Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking uh, about that. Yeah. Did she marry him because of the Nobel <laughs> And apparently her, <laughs> apparently her answer was, I guess we'll never know. <laughs> Which I think is really cool. <laughs> but anyway, they married on the day he got the prize. So his cere- wedding ceremony was the prize ceremony. I, I, come back uh, come back when you get the Nobel Prize. Exactly. <laughs> then, then we'll talk. Then we'll talk. I like that. I like that. All right. So we already alluded to it a little bit. So um, what it is that Roma does in, in for, for the theory of economic growth, Otto? Well, uh, in a sense, he's, he's really reintroducing uh, some ideas that, the Adam Smith had mm-hmm. about the Adam Smith talked, and I think we have, we, we touched upon this earlier. the The idea that uh, um, you could have increasing interns, the returns to scale. Um, Adam Smith talked about it in in the context of the market, mm-hmm. saying that that uh, when when the the market increases, we can have more division of labor, and then we everybody can be better off. So, uh, and that's uh, what, to a large extent, Roma is focus, focusing on. Um, and he's, especially he's looking at the importance of ideas, mm-hmm. new knowledge. Um, and he's also, he's not the, 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 the first to do this, but he's also looking at the, uh, at labor from a quality perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, others, for instance, uh, Robert Lucas, mm-hmm. whom we talked about earlier, uh, 
uh, said you might you might not uh, be able to produce more human capital in the sense that the economy will produce more people. It, it, it could mm-hmm. it historically, yeah. But uh, but 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 the, nowadays we don't think of the 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 uh, economy as a machine producing more people but it is in a sense producing more people in in the sense that that uh, we can uh, increase the uh, our the value of of uh, of labor yeah by, by educating uh, people and and so on but but the idea was in in Roma is that as we get richer we um uh we 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 can get a higher return to knowledge so we will get a technological uh, advances will uh, depend on on the level of the um, on on of which the economy uh, is, uh, is is currently at mm-hmm. so for instance if we had lived a hundred thousand years ago our knowledge of economics would be of little value to us. Oh yeah. Maybe a little bit, but 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 not much. Now we're living off the, the knowledge, our knowledge of economics. Yeah. And that's because we are in a in a larger uh, and richer economy. So uh, what uh, Roma is really looking for is the uh, uh, the possibility of the economy um, as it grows um creating new impulses mm-hmm. to more growth whereas in in the solar model it will sort of peter out yeah, in the yeah. long run but that is not necessarily the case in 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 a in a in a in a, in a solar model actually what is one of the 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 interesting factors limiting growth in the solar model is that uh, as we go richer uh, as we uh, we we have Uh, we have a love for variety. Yeah. So, uh, and even if uh, we uh, we can have increasing returns to scale in production, meaning that if you double the input, you more than double the output. You can produce perhaps more than double the number of cars if you double the the input. But we will also have a love for variety. So, so. Uh, instead of just having one brand, uh, one kind of car, <laughs> we'll have lots of, yes. uh, of, of cars. That and that that could mean that we sort of in in a sense uh, reduce our potential uh, compared to the world where we just had one car yeah. and produced uh, a, a lot of cars. But that wouldn't wouldn't actually make a lot of sense. So love of variety makes a lot of sense, but it is a limiting factor yeah. in, in, it becomes a, a limiting factor in in this model. But basically you, you can, you can I, I, I thought it was quite a stroke of genius of the Nobel Prize Committee to award it together, the prize together with, with Nordhaus yeah. because both are basically talking about the uh, consequences of crowding yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in a sense we are uh, what happens when we, we when that we are more people and more economic activity uh, things get more crowded but is that a good or bad thing oh yeah and uh, in Roma story it's actually a good thing it's a good thing so yeah. crowding crowding has 
positive effects. Yeah. Uh, for when I was going to high school, um, everybody was talking about uh, the risk of overpopulation and uh, that we would run out of resources uh, because it would be swallowed by an increase in population, explosion in population. Yeah. Uh, and that's not what has happened. Yeah. We have had an enormous growth of population since the in, in Industrial Revolution. Um, doubled many times, probably not going to double any uh, again. Uh, but but uh, as it has doubled, uh, we have not become poorer, we become richer. You are listening to Econ Roots, your podcast on the history of economic thought. Thank you for joining the conversation. I think there's a lot of interesting things to just shortly uh, unwrap here. Um, so one of the reasons why I think many people are still um, Marshallian and they think that the, the world is going to run out of resources and that growth can't go on forever and all that stuff is because, and I think Roma is good at pointing this out, he says this story is about the conflict between scarcity and progress. How do we explain this enormous progress in a world that's ultimately scarce? full of scarce resources. And it's actually because a lot of the growth we do uh, manifests in in innovation that actually makes us use less resources. Exactly. Right. And um, so, for instance, the iPhone, imagine like if you needed all that kind of stuff that the iPhone can do in individual things, you would need more plastic, metal, all that kind of, more labor to produce it, all that kind of stuff to ship it and so on. Uh, but also imagine what that then makes it possible, right? Like uh, I, I sometimes tell students that if we had the corona a lockdown 10 years earlier there wouldn't have been Netflix so you would have to go to like the blockbuster if that had been allowed to be open and they would have then ordered like a a ton of extra DVDs that we would not be stuck with. Like we would have like so many copies of, of horrible B romantic comedies and stuff <laughs> like, like a total waste. Right. So, so thank, uh, I think we didn't have that. One of the reasons why I really like this Roma idea, and I've also used his work on this is that the idea that while natural resources are stuck in a sticky and specific places and some countries are blessed or cursed with them, depending on what kind of policy they implement, uh, ideas actually just spread. We can actually just make them spread. And And as a Dane, this is a big reason why I think we saw the growth we did in the 20th centuries in Denmark, because many of our main entrepreneurs who founded the, the big companies that drive our economy, they went abroad and stole ideas and then implemented them in daily, in, in different ways, right? Uh, Tietgen and uh, uh, the, the Carlsberg family and all these kind of ideas. So, so the idea that ideas can kind of spread on this, even like a company like Lego, like the Lego idea is unique probably, but what you can use Lego for is it's unending, right? So uh, so uh, I, I use Roma a lot in my uh, coming book on Danish capitalism because he explains this a lot. What, what's actually happening here. Um, so um, uh, I think that's important. And another thing though, that uh, <laughs> that, uh, that I think we should just talk about, have you uh, have you read about his idea of chartered cities? Yes. Yes. Um, what do you think of it? I think it's it's an interesting idea. The idea is that, that uh, governance plays uh, an important role for growth. Yeah. Actually, one, one of the, the questions uh, Roma <laughs> start out with is the question why are there so much difference in in the in 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 standard of living across nations yeah if you take the standard solid solar model there's, there shouldn't be any difference mm. uh, not 
uh, they they would tend to to there would be a, a lot of convergence uh, to to a common level, and we haven't seen uh, that much uh, convergence as you should expect. Not not even the ex- the conversion you should expect in in the basic Roma model no, either because I just they, they spread and yeah, exactly. everybody so can, can, can yeah why is it some countries are still uh, so poor uh, nowadays they don't keep it secret yeah exactly uh, so they, it can be used in 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 in, in Denmark in in Brazil uh, in Congo uh, if, if, if you want to but but even Even if if that's the case, we see differences, yeah. uh, and um, that has to do with the the the, the governance structure. Uh, so Roma's idea was to say, what if we took the governance structure of a of a successful city and implemented it in a, in a city in a less successful country? Uh, so he has been, uh, for instance, taking. Uh, I don't know if I don't think Copenhagen is that uh, good an example, <laughs> no. but uh, Frederiksberg is better. But, uh, <laughs> Used you could, to you could you could take a city in uh, most cities in Europe are, yeah. are, are pretty well uh, run compared to most cities in cities uh, in in Latin America. Why not take uh, the, the rules from? Copenhagen and and use them uh, somewhere in, in in Latin America, yeah. and he's been looking for for actually for for a city to do exactly that. I don't think he has been. <laughs> no, Honduras tried, but then they gave up on it. I really liked it. I'm a big favor of it because I think it's uh, a solo has this idea saying that economists should work on problems that are huge, have huge impacts, but are still potentially solvable, right? So there are some problems that are so big that you can never really prove it, but you should work on this. I think this is an idea where you could actually literally help the world if you acknowledge the fact that some countries are better run than others. However, this is one of the reasons why it's not been implemented because people don't want to acknowledge that, right? They don't want to say, you know, they think it's neocolonialism and so on. Mm. But I actually think this is a way that the West could potentially help a lot of developing countries, like saying, okay, we'll run this city and the people of your citizens want to live there, gets to live here, but we'll run it for you. I think it's a great idea. It's certainly better than what the UK and Denmark is doing now, doing doing refugee camps in other countries, which is just really weird, right? I think this would actually help these countries. I think it's a great idea, right? But this is this is the way a lot of business. Is yeah, exactly. Working. I mean, uh, basically, what McDonald's is is is, is a set of rules. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> so, it's a set of rules. So, so uh, I, I can open a. Hamburger restaurant as well. Yeah. Um, I can also make it a McDonald's yeah. restaurant if I uh, if I abide by certain rules yeah. set by the McDonald's and I yeah. have to pay them for it and uh, they will uh, say how how you're going you're going to do this and customers will expect uh, this service and you're going mm. to give it to them. Uh, otherwise, you can't be a McDonald's. And if customers are happy with and uh, and they seem to be, then that that is going to spread. So basically, that, it's like, that it's like the nation as a franchise, basically. Yes, that's, yeah, that's, uh, what Romans was trying, but it it, it hasn't been as successful as uh, McDonald's. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so um, uh, we we are running uh, quickly out of time here, but uh, we we do still have one uh, star left, which was the co-recipient with uh, with Paul Roma, uh, and that's William uh, Downey Nordhaus, born uh, May thirty first. In 
1941, American again, Sterling Professor of Economics at Yale University. Um, and uh, he got, the reason why he got it uh, with Nordhaus was for integrating climate change into long-run macroeconomic analysis, uh, which is a negative idea of crowding, which is what exactly. you're talking about. Nordhaus was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, the son of Virginia Ricks and Roberts uh, J. Nordhaus, who uh, founded the, the Sandia Peak theme, uh, tr tramway, sorry, tramway, sorry. Um, and he's from a German Jewish family and he's, uh, uh, his father migrated from uh, from Paderborn in uh, um, uh, in um, in the past. Uh, so one of the reasons why it's important to mention this here is because Northhouse actually grew up with the love of the outdoors and appreciation of nature, and that drives a lot of why he's looking at the negative side of crowding. I think uh, so. While uh, while Romer was motivated probably by some other discussions in, in his home, Northhouse uh, was motivated by other things. He's graduated from the Phillips Academy in Andover, and subsequently received his BA and MA from Yale in '63 and '73, respectively. He was actually a member of Skull and Bones there, just like uh, George Bush. Right, the very, very important things. He uh, he holds a certificate from Institut is Etui uh, Politique and uh, a P. I'm bad at French. A PhD from MIT, um, and he's also been at Cambridge. Uh, and he worked also in actually administrating uh, uh, academics. So he's been like a provost and vice president for for finance administration uh, and at Yale and so on. Uh, so he. Um, He's widely read, not just by economists, also by ph uh, philosophers, and he's uh, he's used uh, as an advisor a lot. Um, before we go down to his theory, which I don't think will take that long necessarily, because it's very straightforward, uh, we just need to mention that he was actually uh, co-writing with Samuelson, his uh, Samuelson very famous economics book, right, the the textbook uh, for uh, from the 12th edition to the 19th edition. So, uh, so he had in that sense a very direct impact on many graduate students in economics, right? So uh, that's important to mention. Um, so, climate tax, I guess, is the theory, right? Or yes. carbon tax, sorry. Yes, that's, that's, that's what he basically is recommending. Um, so, uh, you're absolutely right that uh, Nordhaus is about the negative side of, of crowding, in a, in a sense. Um, all of the fact that as uh, we, we, we wouldn't have had the, the level of uh, uh, well-being we have today, the living standards, uh, by far without fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So fossil fuels have been an important input into producing our wealth. But there is a negative side effect of uh, fossil fuels, especially uh, in, in the sense that it produces uh, CO2, mm -hmm. uh, greenhouse gas, which is a greenhouse gas, and which is also uh, contributing to, um, to, uh, to, to heating our climate. And heating our climate could have a negative effect. So what Nordhaus did was just like Solo uh, started out to think about how do we integrate the effect of, uh, of uh, climate change into our economic model. And um, what is, and he, he did that by on, on one hand looking at the positive effect of emitting carbon uh, and at the same time the negative effect. And the basic idea uh, in his uh, his model, he 
produced the, the first climate model, it's called DICE. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, and so-called integrated assessment model, model which yes. is used yeah. for, for, for climate uh, economics, climate science uh, uh, all the time. The, the basic idea is that that um, as, as you, if you uh, increase uh, the the uh, number of or the, the the level of of uh, greenhouse gases, you'll have a negative effect, which will start to compete with the positive effect <laughs> of the the process, mm -hmm. which which uh, is is resulting in in in, uh, in 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 the emission of, of greenhouse gases. So the basic idea idea uh, really is that you should look for a, a path where uh, you allow for the positive effects or, or allow for the effects which have the side effects of emission uh, emitting greenhouse gases but only to the to the point where the cost of uh, of global warming is higher than the benefit of the uh, process producing yeah. uh, greenhouse ga uh, gas emissions. So it's important to balance these two things. Um, and you could say, why why doesn't the market take care of it by itself? It also balances things. Uh, yeah. in, uh, if if I use a, a scarce resource in production, uh, if as it becomes more and more scarce, I, it, its price is going up, and I will use less of it. So yeah. I will sort of balance my my use of scarce resources. Uh, if we talk on, talk about natural resources, you could also see the the atmosphere as a sort of uh, scarce resource. It has a limited capacity for holding uh, greenhouse gases without. Uh, uh, Creating too much uh, global warming, so, the, but 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 we don't have a price on 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 the, on on emitting um, uh, uh, on unless uh, global uh, or we don't have a price on greenhouse gases uh, like we have a price on coal, oil, other other scarce resources. So uh, the, the basic implication of Nordhaus model is that we should have a political price instead and that price should be set to the uh, it would be equal to the to the marginal uh, cost of emitting uh, greenhouse gases in terms of, of global of global heating and so so he has produced yeah. proposed uh, a tax and he has also uh, Try to to uh, to calculate what what would be the sort of so-called optimal level of global warming uh, <laughs> if we take into account that it both has it has a cost and a, a, and a benefit and uh, actually his uh, his uh, his calculation is says that we should accept uh, global warming uh, global warming of three degrees Celsius over the, uh, compared to pre-industrial uh, revolution times. Yeah. Um, so, and that's, that's, that's actually more than, than the, the world is aiming for in the Paris uh, Accords, which is uh, 
uh, it's 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 one and a half to two uh, two degrees. But uh, actually, if you look at at what they have agreed to do, <laughs> it's uh, it will produce uh, global heating of around uh, three three degrees. So so maybe. Uh, Maybe he's a, not that bad. <laughs> exactly. So one of the reasons why I like him is because um, I think it's there's so much sound economics in this solution to a to a combo. It's 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 acknowledging it's a, it's an externality. It's acknowledging it's a trade off. Saying like there is a trade off because we generally want growth. We want people to to increase in living standard and all these kind of things, and that has a price. So that's right. I also like the fact that if you do a carbon tax. And whether that's political possible or not, that's another thing, right? It it's potentially cuts off a lot of lobbying if if this could actually come out. But but I also like the fact that even if we just implement it, what will companies do? They will put that to the consumers, they'll have to pay. But then the consumer will still have free choice whether you want, you know, steaks or go to Thailand, right? You know, which is fine. It's free choice, right? Which is what you want ethically as economists. Um but then what will probably happen is that a company will use their very specific division of labor derived knowledge to green their production so they don't have to pay this carbon tax. So they're still competitive, right? So we'll actually get innovation running in a way we want without trying to micromanage it with all those problems that has. I think there's so much sound economics in an author solution, yes. which I think is so good. And and I like your point in then saying that he might actually be right with the three degrees, right? You know, which could be uh, yes. interesting. Um, It's interesting. He 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 started out, but uh, he started to to study the impact of climate change long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in in the seventies. And uh, so, so he's really been a pioneer, and that was re- recognized by the uh, uh, by the Nobel Prize yeah. Committee uh, by giving the first uh, prize ever awarded for for for, for climate economics. Uh, but he is not an alarmist, no, no, uh, because basically because this analysis is telling him that 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 we should not be alarmist. We we should be careful not to have too much global warming, but uh, but. Uh, But but uh, we should also be careful not to 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 do things to prevent global warming that is uh, doing much more harm than good. Yeah, exactly. And and just a little side caveat to the history of thought here. Many people nowadays, when they hear externalities, they think about pollution and the environment. That was not how that started. He was a very early pioneer. First. Originally, we didn't care so much about externalities. It wasn't important because we weren't rich enough to care. Mm-hmm. Then we started. So most of the externality theory was actually developed to to deal with labor relations mainly, and then it's been applied later on to what we care about now: the environment. Because we're rich, because we have had growth, right now we can actually care about birds and stuff, right? <laughs> stuff. Anyway, la- one last thing uh, before we finish up because we have run way over time. Sorry, dear listeners, but this is such an important topic to both of us. One thing that I think we need to comment on I, at least i like to comment on and see about it, if you want to join in i think north house give a good reason why government has a role to play in setting the right policy incentives and maybe even a form of global government and sort of maybe not one government but some sort of global agreement however attacks 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 that everybody can sign up to it does need to be a global government obviously but uh, at least there's that one thing that i'm a little bit sad about Romer, though not so much in his writing but when you hear him give interviews and so on is that he's very fond of government and it's always confused me a little bit because uh, he says it's it's an ideological thing he thinks people on the right is just hating on government for that for no for ideological reasons and if he hears this then i'm sorry if he thinks i'm doing that too but actually that's not my point 
my point is theoretical, is that I think sometimes Roma confuses government with governance. We can have plenty of governance without government. And when we do have government to install governance, it's not like the other things that start with a capital G God that just go instant and benevolent and does everything. It's populated by people that makes mistake who have imperfect knowledge and their own incentives, which we'll talk about in later episodes when we get to public choice, which Northout also worked on, right? He did a little bit of public choice. So, And I think, and I'm sad about that, I think Orma sometimes confuses government and governance. And I think he's... He's ignoring the problem that comes with trying to do governance with government, right? Uh, which, uh, which I think is, 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 it annoys me a little bit. What, what's your take on this? Well, it's, I think it's, it's, it is fairly frequent for, for economists to, to become constructivists. Yeah. Uh, to, to, and to be tempted by the idea that you had, if you had a planner uh, who was perfect, yeah. there uh, in their uh, benevolence and their information and so on, um, then you could do a lot of things. Yeah. You could do a lot of things. I think, um, uh, but we have to realize that you could, you could basically, you could ask why, why don't businesses just do yeah. a lot of good things? Well, they are, economists understand that they are, they are on, uh, operating on the rules uh, of the market. So, uh, so, so there are certain things they have to do. The same is true for politicians. Yeah. Uh, you have to realize that. And so politicians can make uh, policy mistakes, uh, and but then they can also make policy mistakes. Uh, they, they, can, they can make uh, uh, mistakes which are uh, systematic yeah. rather than 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 than. than uh, uh, the result of poor knowledge, so I think I think that's that's important to to realize. And and uh, as you mentioned, Nordhaus is much more aware of this. Yeah. He actually very early on in his, his career studied uh, political business cycles, yeah. where the idea is that that uh, while you could, and we talked about this uh, earlier, while you. Uh, ideally, you could smooth out the business cycles by economic policy. Uh, but if you add the uh, political incentive, for instance, to win the next election, <laughs> next election yeah. you, that could not uh, only uh, prevent that from happening, that could create business cycles of their own. And that has been a, a topic started by Nordhaus. That is scarily relevant right now, I think, with the inflation rising and yes. the political response and so on. That is actually very scarily relevant. But yeah, I, I agree. So we'll, we'll, we'll finish up now. It's just... I agree with this because just like you can probably have too little government, some would say, uh, you can also have way too much government if it's if it's not functioning correctly. And I don't think North, uh, I don't think uh, Roy, which I really am a big fan of his theoretical contribution, used it a lot. But I don't think he acknowledges that point enough. Like you have third world countries where the problem is the government, right? Like you know, it's there, but it's just horribly dysfunctioning and holding society back. And first world, uh, first world too. So, so, yeah. So, uh, and, and uh, I, making policies yeah. that's, that's not uh, that's holding us back. Exactly. And, and climate policy really is an example of that. It, you could you could argue that it started out as a market failure yeah. in the sense that you didn't have a price uh, on on emis emitting uh, carbon uh, into the atmosphere, but it has turned into a, a government failure oh, yeah. instead because even if and. Almost all economists, they recognize that the right approach to this 
problem is a uniform carbon tax. We don't have a uniform We don't have one. Yeah, exactly. Even within a country like Denmark, we don't have a uniform No, no, there are still special the interests. emitting greenhouse gases is, 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 is uh, varying from uh, ex- an extremely high uh, level, 10 times the, the global externality uh, to nothing. Nothing, yeah. Um, I agree, and uh, so so I think that's just something that needs to be said. And I don't think that's an ideological issue. I think this is an empirical issue and a theoretical issue. I don't think, of course, ideology plays into it at some principle level, but I, I don't think it's an ideological issue. No. But anyway, thank you, dear listeners, and thank you, Otto, for bearing with me. This this ran too long, but it was just such a good talk. It was invigorating. Uh, so. Very, very three. Very important laureates uh, uh, this time. Exactly, and maybe the most important topic. So, so thank you so much, and thank you, dear listeners. And until next time, stay rational. Thank you so much for spending your valuable time with us exploring the history of economic thought. You are welcome to email comments and suggestions to Stefan at cpas.dk. Please like and share and recommend this podcast anywhere you can and think it's relevant. Until next time. Stay rational.